0: You'll grab your copy of the Bible and stand with me. We're going to be reading from the Gospel according to John chapter one verses one through eighteen. John one one through eighteen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word. Was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for giving us your word. The Son of God, the light of the world, the life of man. Father, thank you that in him and through him and by him we have been restored to you that we are children of you. Father, now through your Holy Spirit, teach us, cause our minds and our hearts to swell with love and admiration for who you are and what you did for us in purchasing us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of John is different from the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew begins his Gospel with the lineage of Jesus from his paternal father's side, stretching back to Abraham, and then moves directly into the events that took place surrounding the birth of Jesus. This Gospel puts the emphasis upon the teaching of Jesus. Mark's Gospel is a quick-paced gospel that begins with a very short introduction of John the Baptist and then hurls the reader right into the adult life of Jesus. This gospel puts the emphasis upon the miracles of Jesus. Luke's gospel is written from a historical standpoint and gives us another lineage of Jesus, this time from his mother's side of the family. And this one takes his lineage all the way back to God through Adam. This gospel was written with the emphasis being made upon the universal nature and appeal of Christianity to all humans. The Gospel of John is different from the Synoptic Gospels. It omits about 90% of the material found in the Synoptic Gospels. It contains no parables. And while the Gospel of Matthew may focus on the teachings of Jesus, John's gospel unlike all the other Gospels contained lengthy dissertations given by Jesus. John's Gospel begins with a summation prologue, which is, in and of itself, a complete Gospel presentation. We have to ask ourselves, why did John write this Gospel? And why would he begin his Gospel in this manner? We know that his was the last Gospel to be penned, probably around the year A.D. 100, a full 70 years after the death of his beloved master. He most assuredly had read the other three Gospels. Why would he not follow their pattern and their vision? Well, one reason is because the other three Gospels had been written and were being circulated within the Church. Because of this, John's Gospel could then focus on a different and yet just as important aspect of Jesus, his divine nature coupled with his humanity. Before we get into this gospel, into the message of this gospel, we should first learn who this man John was. Mark 3.17 tells us something about him. It says, James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James, to whom Jesus gave the name Sons of Thunder. We can't know why for sure Jesus would call them Sons of Thunder, but it would seem that they were hot-headed and quick to want to act. We do have the story of the time they wanted to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan town as evidence of this. Before he became a disciple of Jesus, he had a fishing business with his brother James, Peter, and even Andrew. He was part of the inner circle to Jesus along with Peter and his brother James. These three alone were permitted to witness such events as the raising of Jairus' daughter, the transfiguration, and the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We also know that he was a disciple of John the Baptist. and was probably one of the two disciples that are spoken of in John 1, verses 35-39, through 39, that spent the day with Jesus after hearing the Baptist proclaim a second time, Behold the Lamb of God. We also have a surprising amount of historical evidence from the early church fathers as to how the fourth gospel came into being. The earliest is that of Irenaeus, who was the Bishop of Lyons about A.D. 177. Irenaeus was a pupil of Polycarp. Polycarp had been a pupil of John. Because of this, there is a direct link between Irenaeus and John. And Irenaeus writes, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also leaned upon his breath, himself also published the gospel in Ephesus when he was living in Asia. In this explanation on the writing of the gospel of John, Irenaeus does not say that John wrote the gospel. He says that John published it. There's a difference between writing something and publishing it. In the first century, this term was used to describe how official documents were distributed, not personal biographies or books. From this, we can know that the Gospel of John was not a letter that was recognized by the church as canon years after being distributed. It was gospel from its inception. The next account is that of Clement, who was the head of the church or the school of Alexandria about A.D. 230. He writes, Last of all, John perceiving that the bodily facts had been made plain in the gospel, being urged by his friends composed a spiritual gospel. The important thing here is the phrase being urged by his friends. We can be wrong in thinking that John died in isolation. He had been exiled to the island of Patmos for a time, but but spent most of his time with the church, first in Jerusalem, as chronicled in Acts, and then in Ephesus. From accounts such as this, we can see that there was a church behind the writing of the fourth gospel, supporting the writer of the fourth gospel, encouraging him. On the same lines, a 10th century manuscript called the Codex Tolatinus, which prefaces the New Testament books with a short description, prefaces the fourth gospel with this. The Apostle John, whom the Lord Jesus loved most, last of all wrote this gospel at the request of the bishops of Asia against Serenthus and other heretics. We know that John served as one of the elders at Ephesus toward the later part of his life. And tradition states that he died and was buried there as well. Statements like this one above give us some insight into one reason why the gospel is so different from the rest. It's written to dispel a multitude of heresies that had already infiltrated the church even as early as AD one hundred. Gnosticism was one of those heresies. Gnostic claimed to be Christians. They rose to prominence within the church and held sway over much of the teaching in some churches, and for this reason they could do much damage to the church. Gnosticism says that humans are divine spirits and are trapped in physical bodies. Heretics today, such as Rob Bell and Oprah Winfrey, still believe this. They believe that the world was made by an imperfect being and that Jesus was sent by him to inform us of who we are. They viewed everything that is made of matter as evil, and for this reason denied that Jesus was actually human. This was Serenthus. The other heretics that are mentioned were the Judaizers, who were trying to wrestle Christianity back into Judaism through the mandates to follow Jewish traditions. They also were part of the local bodies of Christ. Very often they were leaders within the churches since they had an intimate knowledge of the old testament and Jewish customs but their inclination to want to make Christianity nothing more than Judaism 2.0 was no less of a heresy than the gnostics they tried to make the teachings of Jesus compatible with the traditions of the Jewish religion but the long dissertations that are i'm sorry the long dissertations that are chronicled within the gospel of john dispel the myth that the traditions of Jewish leaders were compatible with Christianity. You don't have to read very far into the Gospel of John to hear Jesus confronting the religious establishment, often very strongly, such as in John 8, 44, when he told them, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires or even offending the common people, such as when he told them that if they didn't eat his flesh and drink his blood, that they could have no part of him. Jesus was not a joiner. He was not looking to build the kingdom that the religious establishment had developed. He had one interest in mind, to do his father's will in building the kingdom of God. And we have this one final bit of insight into the life of John his thinking, and perhaps the reason that this gospel is so different from the others. It's given us in John 19, verses 26 and 27, during the last moments that Jesus spent alive on this planet. It says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her home, or took him to his own home. There was a love between Jesus and John that shook the apostle to the core, that changed his life so much so that after his time with Jesus, he was no longer referred to as a son of thunder, but for the rest of his life would be referred to as the disciple of love. We don't have to guess at the ultimate purpose that John had in mind in writing this gospel, he told us. He gave us a thesis statement. John chapter 20, verse 31 says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He wrote this gospel as witness that Jesus was God, so that you may believe that he is the Christ. He wrote this gospel so that you could share the love of this Jesus with him and that through belief that you may have life in his name. The love of Christ had wrecked this man's world. It changed him so much that it seemed that he lost himself completely in it and desired only to be known by it. Perhaps this is why he only referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. That was enough for him. With this background information that we have, we can now begin to dig into the prologue part of the gospel. And what a prologue it is. In this prologue, there are words and labels that are very important in understanding the purpose and thrust of this gospel. Words such as word, God, light, life, Christ, and even world. And as we come to each of them, we're going to unpack them for their meaning and importance. The first 18 verses of this gospel the ones that we read today, captured the hearts and minds of Christians during the first three centuries more than any other part of the Bible. Jesus is elevated to such heights in this prologue that these people became virtually preoccupied with digging into the high view of Christ that is expressed in it. They developed what was called Logos Christiology, the understanding of Christ as the Word. It is only in this prologue that Jesus is ever referred to as the Word, which John does three times in verse 1 and then once again in verse 14. And then never again. John also refers to Jesus as light and life in verse 4 and 5. And the final thing that John refers to Jesus as is found in verse 17, the Christ. Just like with the Word or with light, or with life, Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It's a descriptor of who he is. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The John was referring to Jesus when he used the term Word is without a doubt. But why did he use this term? What was the thinking behind it? In both the Greek and Jewish societies, the term word was linked to the divine. In the Greek thinking, logos, or word, was impersonal and referred to knowledge or truth. For the Jews, the concept of the word of God is a major Old Testament theme. It points out the absolute uniqueness of Israel's religion on the basis of the personal contact with Yahweh, the transcendent, Sovereign, creating, God. That John intended his audience to understand that he meant logos in the Jewish sense of the word is evidenced by the fact that it's used in the context, the biblical creation of the universe. The Jewish Old Testament scriptures are replete with the word being said to do only those things that God could have done. The Ur, the word was the agent of creation in Psalm 33, 6. He introduced the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15, 1, gave Israel the Ten Commandments, Exodus 24, 3, and 4, attended to the building of the Solomon's temple, 1 Kings 6, 11 through 13, and revealed scripture to the prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Jonah, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. In short, in the Old Testament, The Word communicated God to humanity. This is exactly what Jesus did as well. He revealed to the world the Word of God in himself. There are three things he tells us about the Word in this verse. The first is that in the beginning was the Word. It doesn't say that the Word was made in the beginning or that the Word was the first of things that were made. It says that the Word was in the beginning. Because he was in the beginning, we have to determine that he was either God or he was with God. Well, John seemingly tells us which this is, though, because the second thing that we're told is that the Word was with God. So, in fact, not God. But then John wrecks our God in a box theology by telling us the third thing about the Word, that while he was in the beginning and even though he was with God, he is God. And John was very specific in saying that the Word was God. And not that God was the Word. If he would have said that God was the Word, then a wrong understanding of the Trinity could ensue in thinking that God and the Word are the same entity. But he says that the Word was God. Word is an entity and God is an entity. Separate but equal. This verse The opening line of the prologue to the Gospel of John is one of the most open and shut cases for the triune nature of God. This has been evidenced by how much the heretical sects have tried to change it or change the meaning of it. But it can't be changed. It can't be altered. And John made sure that no one could misunderstand what he was saying about the word, so much so that he repeats it again in verses 2 and 3, which says, He was with God in the beginning, Through Him, all things were made, and without Him, nothing was made that had been made. Once again, we are taught a very important fact about the nature of God. John does not say that all things were made by the Word. They were made through Him. All things were made by God and through the Word, which is God. Again, two separate but equal entities. And if you ever question if Jesus is God, or run into another person who says that Jesus isn't God, that he's just a God or a prophet, do this. Take a piece of paper and draw a line from the top to the bottom down the middle. On one side, write, all things that were made. And on the other side of that line, write, without him, nothing was made that had been made. Now ask yourself, or that person, onto what section are you going to place Jesus No, Jesus is God. John began with this truth simply because everything that follows in this chapter and in the entire book hinges on this truth. If the deeds and words of Jesus are not of God, then this book is completely blasphemous. But he is God. But that's another term that we have to define. Because just like now, there were many gods in the first century. It's been that way almost from the very beginning, as evidenced by the actions of Adam in thinking that he could act outside of the express decree of God, thereby making himself God. The fact that the term God is thrown around so often can be very disturbing and even confusing. Speak to almost anyone and they will tell you that they believe in God. And even those that claim that they don't believe in God act as if they do. Hating someone that they, don't, that they say doesn't exist and spending large parts of their lives trying to disprove the existence of the one that they say does not exist. But the problem lies in the fact that there are a lot of small g gods, things, people, or deities that people worship. And there are a lot of people who actively serve their small g god, some of them claiming to be Christian The Mormons want to claim to serve the true God of the Bible. The NAR people, the New Apostolic Reformation people, those that promote the health and wealth narrative, say that they're Christian. Jim Jones called himself a Christian. Rob Bell calls himself a Christian. So does Kenneth Copeland. Well, how do we clarify this dilemma? Does it even need clarification? Well, outside of the Christian doctrine, it doesn't. For every other religion, leave open the possibility that there are other ways, there are other gods, all roads lead to heaven. It is only the Christian triune God that says there is only one God and only one way to this God through his Son. All roads may lead to heaven, but it is only through the Christian God of the Bible that anyone is ever able to stay there. That's why the generic term God is safe to use in conversation. Everyone has a God that they serve. When we talk about God, we need to be as specific as John was. In verse 17 and 18, he tells us which God he's talking about when he says word and even God. It says, 17 and 18, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side and has made him known. You will hardly ever offend anyone if you talk about God. But when you start getting specific and use the name of Jesus, telling people that it is only through him that there is forgiveness of sins, watch out. It's then that you will find out what and who people worship. And it's when you show them Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, of the gospel of John, the Jesus that rules as king and demands allegiance to him and obedience to his word, it's then that you will be that you will then be able to weed out the heretics and false prophets. When you show them the Jesus that the Bible reveals, it's then that you will offend with a true and living God. Well, let's talk about the term Christ that's used in verse seventeen. What's the deal with that? Well, as I said, Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Christ is the Greek word Christos, which is the translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means the Anointed One. From the time of Adam and Eve, after the fall, and promise of a coming Savior, man has been looking for the Messiah. And as redemptive history progressed, God, through his prophets, revealed more and more about the coming Messiah, and the continued promise of the coming Messiah, such as in Isaiah 61:1, and even more specifically in Daniel 9:24 through 26. The Messiah, this Messiah or Christ, is the same person as the seed of the woman in Genesis 3:15, is the seed of Abraham, Genesis 22:18, the prophet likened to Moses of De- Deuteronomy 18:15 or the priesthood of the order of Melchizedek, Psalms 110.4, the rod out of the stem of Jesse, Isaiah 11.1, the Emmanuel, the virgin son, Isaiah 7.14, the branch of Jehovah of Isaiah 4.2, and the, covenant, or the messenger of the covenant, Malachi 3.1. This is he of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write. The Old Testament scripture is full of the prophetic declarations regarding the great deliverer and the work that he was to accomplish. Jesus, the Christ, is Jesus, the great deliverer, the anointed one, the savior of man. Verse 4 and 5. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the opening lines of this book, we are transported back to the very beginning of recorded history. Back to the moment that all things began. Back to the time when all things were deemed very good. Back to Eden. This entire prologue is an echo of Eden, pointing back to the beginning of all things. In the beginning. These are the first words of the book of Genesis which was originally entitled In the Beginning. And just like with the book of Genesis, the focus here is not on the when of beginning or even the specifics of how of the beginning. The focus is on the who of the beginning, the one that was before the beginning, that brought about the beginning. Drawn transports us back to Genesis for a reason. not just to inform us about the who of the beginning of the universe, but also tell us of the who of the coming universe. He draws our attention back to the temporal while at the same time trying to get our focus on the eternal. We are supposed to be amazed at the temporal creation. There's no way that you can view creation and not be amazed at it. We're supposed to be amazed at the temporal, but we're also being prepared to be stunned by the Eternal. John begins verse 4 in telling us that this word is the life of man. John loved this truth. The concept that Jesus is life is used about 150 times in the New Testament. Of those, John uses it 66 times alone, 36 in this gospel. The Genesis truth that the life of man is, is found in God is reiterated here. We are told in John 5.26 that as the father has life in himself, that he has granted the son to have life within himself, which Jesus demonstrated in the raising of Lazarus and the widow's son of Luke 7. There is a tense shift between verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 was given in the past tense, something that happened that was. Verse 5 is given in the present tense, something that just occurred, that is continuing to occur. The light shines. It still shines, and the darkness has still not overcome it. This prologue is written with the Echo of Eden for a reason. It is written specifically to compare and to contrast the original creation with the reality of the new creation, to cause us to look back at what we can see as truth, and then marvel at it. And then because of the reality that's all around us, marvel even more at the new creation that is brought about through the advent of the Son. God is the creator of all life in the book of Genesis account. And throughout the Gospel of John, we hear Jesus telling us that in him there is found eternal life. John 3.15 says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And the second half of verse 4 is also part of the Genesis account when he tells us that not only was the word the life of all men in creation, but in this life is the light of all men. Just as in the Genesis account, there was dark. I'm sorry, just as in Genesis, there was darkness, and into this darkness, God shone light. The difference is the light that is spoken of in verses 4 and 5 is just not physical light that casts out all darkness. More importantly, it's spiritual light. Something that Jesus made clear in and through his ministry. John 8.12 Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is where John got to understand that Jesus was not just light, but he was the life as well. And that Jesus was not just the physical light and life of man, but that his emphasis was on the truth, that he is the eternal light and life of man. Jesus also told us that the light was not just something that we could have or walk in, but something that we could become. John 12, 36, Jesus says, While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. We are to believe in this light, believe in this life, believe in this word. And in doing so, we become sons of this light, sons of this word. Something that Paul echoed into the church in Ephesus. He said in chapter 5 and 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. John tells us in verse 12 what what being a child of light means when he tells us that through belief in Jesus we become children of God. Verses 1 through 5 are given us to introduce us to the Word, to the light, to the life, to the God of all creation. Then there's a shift of focus that happens in verses 6 through 8 that requires a new introduction. This time, it's not a member of the Trinity, but one who would be witness of the Trinity and to the Trinity. There's a reason for this, because the prologue of this book is just a mini condensed version of the book. It's the cliff notes of this book, and in fact, it's the cliff notes of the Bible. And just as God has revealed himself in the Old Testament, first through his creation, and then through witnesses of the prophets, he does the same thing with his new creation. Verse 6-8 There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that through him everyone might believe. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify about the light the light that shone in the world, shone in the physical world. The life of man was life that actually lived with men. This is why John, like the synoptics, introduced John the Baptist early into the Gospels, since he is sent as a witness that God has condescended to live with man, as a man. He is a witness of the incarnation of the Son there are a couple striking differences between this gospel and the others, though. This gospel does not give him the title, the Baptist, only referring to him as John. Men in the first century were just as thick-headed as we are now, knowing better, but still elevating other men to positions that they shouldn't hold. We do it now in thinking way too highly of celebrity pastors, men that we don't actually know, men who we have never actually lived alongside of, but men who we will elevate in our minds. In the first century, there were men that did the same thing to John, even though he was adamant about the fact that he was certainly not the Christ, and he wouldn't even claim the title of prophet. But there were still men that worshipped him. This was an error that the Apostle John wanted to correct in their minds. Not only does he not give the John uh, give John the title of the Baptist, but he purposely compares him with Jesus. Jesus was. John came. John was a man that was sent by God with a purpose to bear witness about the light. And we're even told why of that purpose, that all might believe. This word might is better translated as should, though. For John did not give the ability to believe in the Christ. He only pointed to that Christ, which is enough evidence to garner true belief. And John the Baptist was a faithful witness to and for God. His entire life was given over to the worship and service of him, as revealed to us through the other Gospels. But he was only a witness. He was only a man and his baptism was only to prepare a people for their king. The Apostle John, having revealed the prophet and the witness of the prophet, now shift his attention back to God and back to the Incarnation. He says, The true light who gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. There is truth found in these verses that is meant to shock us. The first is that the Word, the true God, condescended to become a man. But there's an even more amazing fact, though, is that when he did, men would have nothing to do with him. The second thing that we are not supposed to miss is found in the repeated use of this word, world, used four times in these verses. Within this is the foundational fact that we need to grasp. Words have meaning. And to rightly understand what words are meant to say, we have to be honest with the author. We have to keep them in context of the text, or we create pretext meanings that the original author never intended. The word world gets used a lot in the book of John, 78 times to be exact, and as demonstrated in these verses, that word has different meanings. The first three times that it's used in these verses, it's referring to the physical place called the world. But the last time that it's used in verse 10, John changes the meaning from the planet Earth to the people that live on the planet Earth. A planet cannot receive or reject a person. No, it was the people of the Earth, all the people of the Earth, that didn't recognize him as God. Here again, John desires us to see the tragedy that happened in the Incarnation. Because Jesus didn't manifest himself to a foreign people. He didn't enter humanity in a culture that had never heard of him, who had never, who would have no idea who he was. Verse eleven can really, rightly be translated: "He came home, and his own didn't receive him." These people were his people, the chosen chosen nation of Israel, to whom he had given his law, to whom he had sent his prophets to instruct them, to guide them to reveal himself to them. These people were the ones to whom he had given revelation of his coming. They should have known. They should have been living in expectation of him. They should have received him. But let's not get confused and develop a new subculture within Christianity, a new theology to try and keep separate the nation Israel with the true Israel. We need to understand not All physical Israel is spiritual Israel. Yes, God chose a people to be his own, a nation in which he could demonstrate all his attributes to the people of the world. But within that nation were the elect of God, the chosen of God, before the foundation of the world. And just as most of the world still will not receive Christ, it was so within the nation of Israel. But not all of them. And before we start getting all judgy concerning Israel, we have to look at these verses in light of the coming eternity. He came home, and his own did not receive him. Can you not see how this same tragedy applies today? How many who claim the name of Christ are nothing more than the physical Israel? They are not living for his second coming. They aren't looking for it, not preparing themselves for it. They're happy to live as Christians, with all the benefits that they perceive are theirs, happy to claim the name of Christ, but determining how they get to live, happy to be part of the group and even smug about it, but in fact they are no closer to salvation than those that rejected the Christ in His first advent. But to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of blood, nor the desire or will of God of man, but of God. The end of the story of the Incarnation was not the tragedy of the rejection of the Word. It's the grace of inclusion into the family of God. Remember verses 4 and 5 of our text. In him was life, and the life uh, was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Yes, the rejection of the word is shocking and tragic, but it's not the point of the story. The grace of God and in the inclusion of any into his family is the point of the story. John doesn't say that these verse, in these verses that those that believe in his name are just given the ability to become a child of God. They become a child of God. They are not given a chance to say yes or no in this adoption through belief. The adoption has already occurred. God has set his seal on them through the regeneration of their hearts, through the indwelling of His spirit. And because of this, they are not waiting to be his children placed in a temporary trial adoption. They are given full authority and are already part of the family of God. And finally, let's look at how they are made children of God. Let's talk about this word children. We are sons of God, that's true, but we are not grown sons of God. We are, we are not adult sons of God. We are children of God. Years ago, Tracy made an astute observation that we, are, that we Christians are just like three-year-olds. Our, world, our worlds revolve around us, and we think this world is centered on us. And we even throw tantrums like three-year-olds. This is how we come to Christ. And even at the end of our life, even if we have matured greatly as saints, even then, we die as a three-year-old, only nine months older, maybe a bit more mature, and having more understanding of the world around us, but still just a three-year-old. We may understand our Father better than we did when we were younger, But just as a three-year-old cannot grasp the reality of the world and understand the complexity of their parents, we don't have the ability to grasp the full reality of the real world or the complexity of our Heavenly Father. And verse 13 is a foundational verse in understanding the salvation of God and understanding how those, in verse 12, were able to receive Him, able to believe in His name. In this verse, we are told very clearly that man does nothing. He is done to. Man does not act. He is acted upon. Man does not choose. He is chosen. They are children not conceived of blood. They are children of God, not because they desired to be so. Nor are they children of God because of a change of will not because they decided to follow Jesus. They are children of God for one reason only, because they were born of God. Verse 14, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John once again goes back to the Incarnation and telling us that the word became flesh. Remember that I told you that this gospel was written at least in part to correct the error of the Gnostics. Well, there was another group of people who held that since God is perfect, that he could not have been truly human, that Jesus walked among men in spirit, only appearing to be human. They were called docetic, which means to seem in the Greek, because he seemed like he was human only. In this verse, John is purposely very crude in his description. He didn't say that the Word became human, or that the Word became a man, or even that the Word took on a body. He uses this term flesh in order that there could be no wiggle room in trying to deny that Jesus was truly God and truly man. And John also, for the first time, reveals who the Word is. He's not some cosmic force, He is the incarnate Son who made his dwelling among us. And what are we to make of the fact that John tells us that we have seen his glory? The glory of of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word that is translated as dwelling in this first part of this verse is also translated tabernacled. To the Jewish year, this would have made them think of the tabernacle of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Exodus 40, 34 and 35. In the old creation, the tabernacle was the place that the Shekinah glory of Yahweh dwelt. In the new creation, the glory of God, the same glory that was in the tabernacle, dwells fully in the human body of the Son. And this body was full of grace and truth. That these two words are used to describe the glory of God is not only indisputable, it's an important point that we need to understand. These words need defining. Trying to define grace can be a difficult task, since when we do, we often start defining kindness or gentleness or even love. These are all aspects of grace, but none of them fully tell us what the grace of God is. I've always found the acronym God's Riches at Christ's Expense the most helpful way to describe the grace of God. For in it, all kindness, all love, all gentleness and mercy are shown, while at the same time revealing the cost of these things for us. And then there's truth. In our day and age, Most people who claim, or the people who claim to be the most enlightened, the most well-educated, say that there are no truths. There are only your truths and my truths. What I believe to be true is true for me. And what you believe to be true is true for you. It wasn't quite this stupid in the first century. But even though they held that there were truths, things that were indisputable facts, Where these truths came from was unknown to them. Jesus corrected that error in thinking. For he said in chapter 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not only the radiance of God's glory. He is truth manifested. In him all truth dwells. Is it no wonder that our world wants to deny that there is no truth? There's been another shift in our prologue, though. There's been another change happen. John no longer refers to Jesus as the Word, no longer refers to Him as light or even life, and in no factor, in fact, no longer even refers to God as God, for He has now introduced us more fully to our God In the Son and in the Father. Verse 15. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. We are brought back to the witness of John the Baptist. In this verse, it's made clear that the Baptist was sent by God to reveal God. And even though his ministry came physically before Jesus, his ministry was nothing more than part of the ministry of Jesus. The Baptist pointed to the eternal state of Christ to prove his preeminence. Now verses 16 through 18. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side, has made him known. Verse 16 can be more rightly translated, From his fullness we have all received grace from grace. Or more literally, grace instead of grace. The point that John is making here is that it was a grace that the word was given to man in the law. This was the first grace. And even this grace is more than any man deserves, because God revealed himself to us in it. But that grace has been surpassed by the grace given to man in the incarnation of the Christ, the revelation of truth and real grace in the person of Jesus. This ties in with the Echoes of Eden theme that John has been developing The grace of God showed through Moses in giving the law to man was temporal. The grace of God revealed in his Son is eternal. The first grace of the law is bound up in the second grace, but the second grace is a full revelation of the first grace. Let us step back into the Garden of Eden, back to the beginning of creation, back to a time when all was right in the world. We are told that Adam used to walk in the cool of the day. We have a account of this happening even after the sin of Adam in Genesis 3. Then the man and his wife heard the voice of Yahweh walking in the garden in the breeze of the day and they hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh called out to the man, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. Adam, saw God, he talked with him face to face as a son to a father. But he wasn't alone in this, for we have other accounts of men seeing God, talking to God. Genesis 18, 1 and 2. Then Yahweh appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre in the heat of the day while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent. And Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. It's in verse 18 of our text that we can finally understand how any man ever saw God. How there is no contradiction between this and the truth that no man can see God and live. These men and women saw God. They walked with Him in the cool of the morning, ate with Him beneath the oaks of Mamre. They were with the Son, the only one who has ever seen the Father, the only one that is at the Father's side. It's because of this verse that we know that one day we will see God face to face. And on that day, we will not only see Him, we will be like Him. We will have shed these eyes of faith and be born anew into resurrected eternal bodies just like that of Jesus. There is a reason that John wrote this epilogue with an echo of Eden. The complete gospel of Christ is given within it, but there is a truth found within it that is meant to bring hope to those that have been given the right to become children of God. Because we can, way too often, think of the benefits of being a child of God as being merely here, in this realm. We don't look toward the eternal realm. That's because we're three-year-olds. The glory that we bring to God in these lives is brought to Him in the heavenly realm. And all the real benefits of Christ happen in the heavenly realm. We may sense them in this realm, and we may gain some benefit from them in this realm, such as peace, hope, joy, and love, but they are most fully beneficial for us in the heavenly realm. We think a sanctification is happening in this realm. The pain and suffering part does. But all the development and growth into being more like the son they all happen in the heavenly realm. Happen for our life in the heavenly realm. They happen in our spirit, which is being developed for our heavenly bodies. Christ came to save those that are his, to bring peace between the Father and them, this happens here in this realm, on this earth. This is an amazing grace. But in reality, this happened long ago in the heavenly realm. When we were chosen before the foundation of the world, He stepped down out of the heavenly realm into our realm to bring glory to His Father and demonstrating His love for the Father in the redemption of those that are born again by His Father through his sacrifice on the, Christ, on the cross. But this world is not our home. We hear this in the prayer of Jesus found in John 17, when he says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given, you, given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This world is not our home, but there is a world that is our home. Creation was not merely the stage that God set up to reveal His amazing grace of His Son. God created the universe for His sons and daughters to live in, to dwell in, to dwell with Him in. This is why when we die, when we are brought to glory, we are given new bodies. Why after the destruction of all evil, after the casting of Satan into the pit, after casting death into the pit, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. He, his desire is to tabernacle with us in the new creation. The new creation that began in the incarnation of Jesus. To have real intimate relationship with us. Because he knows that he is the fulfillment of every one of our desires. That in him there is life and life more abundantly he is his desires he desires for us to live that life in him with him walking in the cool of the day with him sitting under the oaks of mamre with him to have that life and the glory in him for all eternity this is our home this is the reason that the prologue of the gospel of john is merely an echo of Eden the truth is that Eden is merely an echo of our home let's pray